0: Well, we're in the book of Genesis, the Gospel of Genesis, chapter 14 this morning. So we want to turn there if we can. Should I say something like flip in your iPhones and blueberries to the book of the Gospel of John, or the Gospel of Genesis? <laughs> yeah, no, I know what I said. That's part of the fun. All right, we are in the book of Genesis, and the best part is being recorded, so you'll have that on tape forever. We pick it up this afternoon in verse 17. Oh, if you don't have a Bible, that would probably be wise. I don't want you to to just stare at your hands. Um, Just go ahead and raise your hand, and we'll give one to you. If you're new to the Bible, which is totally fine, everybody was at one point. Some of us still are, and that's great. Um it's Genesis is the first book. Actually, in Hebrew the words Barashit, it means in the beginning. It's the first word of the uh first word of the actual book. And for that matter, then the first word of the Bible. We read this now in verse seventeen. And the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the valley of Shaveh, which is the king's valley, after the return of the defeat of Helalomer and the kings who were with him. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand, and he gave him a tithe of all. Now the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons... And take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand to the Lord God Most High, the possessor of heaven and earth, that I will take nothing from the thread of a sandal strap, that I will take, that I will not take anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. Except what the young men have eaten, and the portion of the men who went with me in their Eschul and Mamre, let them have their portion. And then 15.1 says, And then after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Don't be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. Will you pray with me, please? Lord God, in the beauty of this time, I pray that you redeem every second, that you fill us to overflowing with your Holy Spirit, that our eyes can see, that our ears can hear, that our hearts are receptive and fertile ground for the planting of of the seed of your word. God, I pray that we would have lots of fun in your scripture today, that, there would be, that we'd be able to laugh where laughter would be due or to, to be pounded where we need to be pounded, that we would be encouraged where we need to be encouraged and challenged where we need to be challenged. Lord, and we pray that we would not escape everything you intend to do. We recognize we're not your task, we're your love. And yet in that, God, you love us enough to let us come to you as we are, but you love us too much to leave us that way so, Father, have your work today in each of us. If there be any who have yet to know you, let this morning be or this afternoon be the afternoon of their salvation. They'd be able to say, on this day, I accepted the gift of Jesus Christ. For those who have been walking in a mild or a tepid or a lukewarm walk with you, let today be the day that you fan the flame, the embers, that you would not quench the smoldering flax, but rather bring it back to fire, that you would not break the bruised reed but rather, Lord, that you would strengthen it and heal it. So, Lord, bring healing and strength and repentance. But don't leave us alone. May we truly have personal, gloriously wonderful intimacy with you now. And Lord, I pray you would speak to each one of us individually as well as corporately. God, get me out of your way. Immerse me in your spirit that I would disappear. And Lord God, fill me to overflowing that I would douse this precious fellowship you bled and died for. That I would douse them with you. So Lord, redeem every second that what need be said be said and nothing more and nothing less. As I commit this time to you now, Lord God, Father, have your way. In the name of your Son, my Savior, our King, the name above all names, Jesus the Christ. Amen. I would say this morning, I said, when any, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Search the scriptures. Let the Bible always have the final say. Let the scripture always be the authority for which you stand on. Otherwise, what you're going to have to do is follow a guy, and that's never wise. Now, who would have thought last week when we were here, that between that time and this time, five people would be dead. A hundred million pounds or more have been looted or damaged in the looting. Two hundred million pounds plus in property damage. Over a hundred independent musical labels in our area completely destroyed because all all of their product was held at the Sony warehouse up in Enfield that 2,275 people would be arrested, A 1,000 people would be charged already. Who could forget the image of that, ma- that poor young boy, the Malaysian boy, who after being helped up was looted himself by those who had injured him. Who could, re- who could forget the image of that poor furniture store, 144-year-old Reeves, burned down by a bunch of people. Who would have thought that last week as we were here, that all of that would take place. I mean, we had heard, some of us already, about the trouble that had happened the night before. But had any of us thought it could escalate to that? Well, the reason I say that is, is that God in his perfect timing, giving us a Genesis months ago, has brought us to this place in Genesis, where that's exactly where we're at. Now, please understand something, that we are roughly as far B.C. in this text as we are A.D. now, currently roughly right about 2,000 years before the birth of Christ, Abram is in existence. We're looking at a story sort of, if you will, mirror on the opposite side chronologically. And this man at 75 was called out of the area of where the Gulf War crisis was years ago. And that man was called at 75, still living with his father, told to leave his family, his country, and most of us are familiar with that, coming from an idol-worshipping community and an idol-worshipping household, Joshua tells us in the last chapter of his book, as he gives us his beautiful sort of epilogue before he dies. And this man is on a journey. And it is the journey that every one of us are on, whether we know it or not. It may not be as categorized and is easy to sort of chart out, but the truth be told, it's the same thing we're experiencing. You see, this guy came and he worshipped idols. His his family worshipped idols. That's what he had to leave. And in every culture in the Middle East, there are four basic categories of gods to be worshipped. And every one of them sort of has a figure out, be that Egypt, be that anything from the Trans-Sumerian or Post-Sumerian for that matter. And there were the gods, if you look at it, the gods of production. And, and really all these things are just sort of things that are beyond you until you find a god to worship. And a result of it, production is the idea of having babies. There's a god that helps give you babies. And people worship that in Greece. People worshipped that in Rome. And all the way before that through Egypt and so forth. And there were gods you worshipped in Ur, for the purpose of that. And there were gods that you worshipped for the purpose, by the way, of provision. You said, all right, God, we live in an agrarian culture. This is, you know, we need grass, we need rain. That's well beyond us. We can't just sort of do a dance and expect it to rain. And so we, they, they would find something to worship with that purpose. The third of that would be the god of protection, Which there was always, I mean, some of the names we get today, for instance, the idea of something being martial comes from the god Mars. And again, we all agree these aren't real gods. They're just characters that someone is invented somewhere to try to get the idea that they can seek these things out and put an entity behind it. And then last be the god of pleasure. And yet in every one of those things, what God takes this glorious man on a journey of is to discover that God really is everything. This God, the God Most High, is everything we need. He's the only real God, and as He's the only real God, we come to the discovery that really all of the other things are lame counterfeits to the real God who really is, not just provides, but is these things. Now understand, maybe you have not bowed down and worshipped something to have a baby. Maybe some of you have actually bowed down to worship things to not have a baby. But in the end of it all, you may know the idea that still there are still things that people seek, put their securities in, put their trusts in, put their pursuits in, put their passions in, that in essence, if you could, it sort of boils down to the same thing. We're still trying to figure out what our purpose is, which would be the idea in that culture in regards of having children. Trying to find out what makes us important in society, and that mad, passionate, ardent pursuit of it is the same thing as chasing after something that isn't God. And God shows Himself to say, "Look, and I'm everything you need to be. I'm all the identity you'll ever need. Provision. Oh, how hard we fight to try to figure out how in the world we're going to be able to pay our bills, keep in the house we live in, keep the house and or keep the car and the insurance." Or at least if we don't, at least make sure we can get on some public transportation to get where we need to go and make sure if we go out to eat, we can pay the bill. But no thing could be more pertinent to the the current week we're in than the God of protection. 17 billion pounds spent in Western Europe on protection. Locks and bolts and alarms. And we all know how good they work, right? You're laying in your house and you're... <laughs> right, and, you, and you can you almost sing along with those alarms that are out on the cars. Now, which one of us runs on and goes, that car's probably being ransacked right now? And we hear those things and we just think, there it is again. Why doesn't that guy shut off his stinking alarm? Or is it just me? Maybe I'm just being too confessional <laughs> But, you know, when you walk by and then there are the things that are clamped and crumped and whatever onto your steering wheel and all this other stuff. Because after all, we want to make sure people don't take our stuff. And we walk around with our hand on a pepper spray or whatever it is. And where can we buy a taser online? There's got to be something we can do. And we go to self-defense classes and we walk around with keys in our fingers and whatever else we think so that we can make sure we're a little bit safer. And I'm not telling you be stupid and walk down an alley and go, all right, God just rescued me from my stupidity. But we get the idea that we spend so much money because, to be honest, we really just don't feel safe, do we? And this last week really hasn't helped. I mean, mean, think about it. I mean, once Sunday and Monday night hit, if you've been around here, if it was late at night and your window was open and one of the grocers in your area decided to close, you know, his shop, so he puts down his shields, which one of you thought they're probably trying to break in somewhere out there unless you could see it? Is there anyone that sat around and went, "Uh uh-oh? I mean, though no one seemed to be breaking into houses, but which one of us thought, oh, maybe it could be ours, or it could be our neighborhood, or what happens if something's set on fire? Now, interestingly enough, in the story of Abram, there are four altars, and I don't find that in any way by chance. Each one of them, in essence, if you will, is a milestone or a monument of where Abram finally comes to the conclusion, God, this is you. This isn't about just some pattern or idealism or society or politics. It's a real person who really loves me, who really speaks to me, who God, by the way, says treated Abram like a friend, called him a friend. You know what, God, you, you really have to be this for me. Now, all the way back in chapter 12 where this whole thing starts, well, and that's kind of where we begin in all this. And just flip back for just a second so you can kind of see these altars with me. The first one of these, by the way, is in chapter 12, verse 7. Now in chapter twelve, verse seven, he's at a terebinth tree in Morah, and we read there, the God says to your descendants, I will give this land. And Abram builds an altar. And now understand, I mean, we don't know how does how does this guy explain to his wife that one of these things spoke to him? (coughs) Which one? Well, maybe it's the baby God. He told me here that he's going to give it to my children. Maybe he's the one that gives us purpose. Maybe he's the God that really makes me productive, makes me fruitful all right, here's an altar to the God that gives me purpose. He's given a promise. I'm going to trust him. Chapter 12, verse 8, notice it says he built his second altar. The second altar is on a mountain between Bethel and Ai, Bethel to the west, Ai to the east. He's heading south. We read from there that he will go south again from there. And by the way, south from there is the desert, the desert of Negev. And by there, there's a famine... I don't know about you, but when there's a famine, probably the last place you want to go is a desert to help actually find food. <laughs> it seems like the opposite direction. And, um, but he does, and he continues south from there. We read no intercourse between him and God during this particular period of time. He had gone from this altar, leaves this altar, walking through the desert, still nothing, heads down into Egypt, has to do the whole tell him you're my sister deal. He comes out with that whole thing. And interesting, he will end up, look at chapter 13, verse 4. He ends up back at that same altar, the one that he had built. And you're like, all right, God, you know what? Actually, I guess you're the one who takes care of me. You're the one who provides. Okay, God, so I've, I've had to conclude in my life that you really are the one who gives me purpose. So my purpose isn't going to be to be a musician or an athlete or a brain or a or a computer genius or not, or to be a thug or to be a performer or to not be a performer or to be a socialite or not to be a socialite or whatever it is. I mean, who in the world am I? And God says, look, at first and foremost, I want my... Your identity to be me, so that when people look, what they see is, is me. And we recognize this as Christians, because in Colossians chapter 3, it tells us, since you were raised with Christ, seek the things which are above, not the things on earth, Put your mind on the things above, because you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, you will appear with him in glory. And he says, look, it, I'm your life, man. I'm not just part of your life. I'm not just an additive. I'm not the side dish that makes the meal complete. I am the meal. And until I really become your life, you will never have the satisfaction, I promise you. And and somewhere in all of that, some of you are getting that now. I'm watching the Lord grab a hold of you and go, wait a minute. He's supposed to be more than just a rich relative I visit on Sundays to kind of belly up with my new list of concerns and needs. You're my life. But then from that, you know, I, I... if you're really going to be my life, then I have a whole new set of values, including, by the way, now you become more important, I become less important. God becomes the first and foremost thing. I go to the back of the line, and all of you get in between it. And that means, if, But if that's the case, then who's going to look out after me? Oh, yeah, the one who proved it by dying on the cross. I think that's a pretty good, well, it's as good of an element as you could possibly get to say, who could possibly love me more than somebody who's willing to sacrifice all that. And so I can look after you, but then it's like, well, then, Who's going to watch my back if I'm at the back of the line? God says, I'm your rear guard. Haven't you read the book of Psalms? And I'm the one who's going to provide for you. I have to be your provision. And so I go, okay, wait a minute, I reconcile that. Now that means there may be times where I'm sitting going, all right, Lord, you tell me whether I go to that or not. You tell me I'm not going to just sit here and wait for chunks of money to fall from the sky on my front because if they do, I better be ready. The next door neighbor will grab it before I get it. But, you know, in, in the end of it all, I'm going to be available for whatever and however you lead me. I'm going to be open for that. But then our third altar, by the way, and this is where we got to this, was in chapter 13, verse 18. where We read that he's at the Terebinth tree of Mamre. And take a look at that verse with me for a moment, for what it's worth, because there's something kind of important that we want to see in that. <coughs> he's at the Terebinth tree of Mamre, and he builds this altar. Now, look at chapter 14, verse 13. It tells us, as he dwelt at that Terebinth tree of Mamre, it says, Terebinth tree of Mamre, the Amorite, and he has a couple, this guy, Mamre, who is an Amorite, has a couple brothers. One guy's name is Eskol, and the other guy's brother's name is Enner. Do you see that there? And notice it says they were allies with Abram. doesn't say that Abram was allies with them. Abram comes with a very large group of people, and as he comes with a very large group of people, he's basically a mobile city. I don't know if you have thought about it. I mean, it's 318 people born in his house that were servants that he trained for war. That doesn't tell you about the other servants he trained for making tea and the ones he trained for making food and the ones he trained for ironing his clothes or for washing his whatevers and keeping his sheep. I mean, how many people does this guy have? One that he doesn't have is a son by birth, and yet he certainly has an awful lot of people. And so when this guy comes moving around, I mean, this, I mean, talk about a flash flash mob. This guy is, He's 1,000, 2,000 people strong, to say the least. When I mean, this guy moves into town, you kind of know it. <laughs> and so this guy moves as he moves about. It tells us he's, he kind of sets. Other people kind of look around and go, we better buddy up with this guy. I mean, he seems to be a pretty powerful and important guy, and he's very wealthy at this point. It's interesting, though. So he's there. These other guys are, and, and don't miss these names for a moment, because you'll see them again back in our text. These other guys that are allies with him that are Amorites. Now, with that, he had also been traveling with somebody he wasn't supposed to, his nephew. His nephew's name is Lot. who, By the way, God had said, leave your family because I want to start something new. I want, to be, I want to reinvent you. And to reinvent you, I need all the things that identify you before this point to really be cut. I want you to sever those things that give you your previous identity because I have something so much better to reinvent you as. To reinvent you as a father. You know, no know father. You know wealthy. You know influential. You know old guy in the community. But you don't know father. And that's something I... If really, do invent you with that, you're going to kind of have to pull out from where you came from. Well, with all of that, that gets to that point where Lot and he are so blessed financially, they both have so much stuff that they have to part ways. And if you remember, that's what we learned last week as we looked at Lot. Lot looks, and, and, and Abram's at the point now, he's now accepted the fact that God's his provision, so he doesn't have to kind of dictate which way Lot's to go. He says, Lot, you just pick whichever way you want. God's going to provide for me anyways, so you pick whatever you want. I'll go the other direction just to kind of keep out of the strife of this. With that, Lot looks, and he looks at the Jordan Valley, which is the area where Sodom and Gomorrah are. And what he sees, and God makes really clear, it says it's well watered, it's beautiful from the surface, but I already am planning to destroy it. And boy, that's a real key point that what Lot saw was something that looked really good from the surface, but it was already, it already had a marked off expiration date. And there's a lot of stuff like that out there. All you have to do is turn on the telly, and you're going to find that everywhere. Stuff that's real shiny and real exciting, but it's got an expiration date. This stuff isn't going to last long anyways, and you can spend your whole life chasing after it. And that's what Lot did. And we read that the people of Sodom and Gomorrah were exceedingly wicked. God says it wasn't just that they were wicked. These guys were overachievers when it came to wickedness. And as they were overachievers, it tells us that Lot, I I remind you, it tells us that Lot's got herds and flocks and tents. That's the way that his wealth is identified. So in other words, he's got flocks, so that means he's got sheep and goats. He's got herds, that means he's got cows and bulls. And he's got tents, which means that he's got people. But it kind of makes it sound like the guy is herding all three of them. Do you kind of get that? I'm hurting my sheep and my goats. I'm hurting my... Because wherever he goes, the stuff has to go with him. The reason they left him in the first place is they had too much of it for the ground to support them. But that seems to be the way with the people. And this is the fundamental part is that somewhere down the line, by this point, we see that this guy Lot is in the city. He's no longer out in the grassy area to feed all of this. He has shepherded all of this, including all the people that were with him, into a horribly wicked city. And we don't read a single one of those people are going to escape it when God punishes it. I mean, think about that. Now, maybe you don't recognize the shepherd you are, the influence you are, the people that watch you and study you and are influenced by you, but you kind of steer them somewhere. And not steered every one of these people to a place that was not only going to be destroyed, but in doing so, he steered them to be destroyed. And do you want to be that guy? That gal? Then in the end of it all, you kind of laxed off for a moment and said, I really don't have to follow that conviction, though the Lord's made it clear. I'll back off a little bit. And you have no idea who you're steering, who I'm steering, who's looking when you don't think anyone is. Well, that takes all these people into the city, and not one of them is going to make it out alive, even the people who marry his daughters. So while all that's happening, when you get into a society you're going to adopt its politics and its slavery too and that's what we got with this is that there was this guy in the east in Iran and Iraq and his name is Kideldomer and he had put the entire area where lot moves into under subjugation they were paying taxes and for 12 years they paid taxes on the 13th year they said forget this we're not paying taxes anymore and what happens is the king retaliates, as most do in those times, with strong force. Now, in between the area where they are, by the Dead Sea, if we were to say this is the case, we put it here, and Iran and Iraq over here is this sort of wall of people, the Rephaim <laughs> and the people that he mentions, by the way, for what it's worth, are all people that are known as being giants. So you kind of got this wall of people that are kind of thugs. They're big, tough guys that you think they can't get through that, and they take down everything in the way, and then they get to where Lot is, and they take that whole thing. And we read that they take Lot and Lot's stuff. Now, don't miss this. Lot moved away from Abram to go and protect his stuff and to invest in his stuff to get a field for his stuff, and Lot lost all of it in this captivity. He put himself in a society of people. Listen, listen, listen. He put himself in a society of people. Or he's going to lose it all. And you look from the outside and you go, you know, these people are in bondage, man. Look at how they're being taxed. Have you done that? Have you looked at a group of people and they could say, well, we call ourselves Christians or they don't call themselves Christians or whatever the case is. And you kind of look, but you go, you know, there's a whole lot of bondage in all of this. There's bondage of gossip and there's bondage of cattiness and there's bondage of backbiting and bondage of thievery and bondage of lust and bondage of flesh. and, And you know, and I just know if I jump in it, I'm going to jump in, that, that, I'm going to pay the same tax as everyone else does the moment I jump into that society. And he, interestingly enough, and all that he's thinking, but I'm going to get more stuff out of it. i got more to gain if I jump in there, and then you do and you lose it all. And this is a warning shot, because ultimately, the most amazing thing is as Lot gets delivered, he goes back where he came from. Wouldn't you think at this point you got a good enough smack in the face to go, wait a minute, where in the world am I? Why am I with this group of people? I need to get out of this. No, he goes back into Sodom with the people that he was with, back into Sodom, and then ultimately all of them will be destroyed and all of that stuff. None of it goes with him when he's fleeing. Are you at that point? Have you had the slap yet? Have you gotten the wake-up call? Have we gotten this last week? Going, all right. What are you chasing after at this point? What group are you hanging out in? If you're hanging out in the wrong group, how long before it catches up with you? Well, with all of that, news gets back to Abram. And his news gets back to Abram as he's at that terebinth tree. With those other guys, he gathers up 318 of his own posse. people. These are servants born in his house by servants, which has to mean, by the way, unless some of them have more than one kid, you have to double that and add it because that's the parents of those people born by that. And all of that, he takes these people and he sends... Now, I want you to get this. He gets a renegade group of people from his own family, basically. And with that, he's going to take on the kings. There were four of them versus the five that were down here. He's going to take on these four that have taken down all the giants that were in between. Now, there was nothing that has stopped him up to that point. How do you talk Abraham out of this one? Well, how do you talk him into it? You're like, you know, these people haven't been taken down by anything, Abram. Nothing. Nothing has taken them down, Abram. What makes you think you and your 300-plus group of guys are going to take down this thing when the army of five kings couldn't stand up to the army of these four? So you've got Iran and Iraq coming in and all this, and you like, so what makes you think you and your 300 or so guys, that sounds a little bit like Gideon, doesn't it? He only had 300 or so guys. Why do you think that? And, and I, I do believe if you talk to Abram at that moment, he'd say, I don't, I don't, it doesn't matter. He's my brother. No, granted, he's his nephew, but the term brother keeps popping up here. And the point is, look, if he's my brother, I would rather die trying to save him than sit back and let him die like this. Well, let me ask you something. Do you know anyone you would call your brother that you'd rather just let die out there in the world? Are we really calling him Brother? Abraham looks and goes, look it, I'm not going to sit still while somebody that I love is taken in bondage because of his own stupid choices. And you can say, hey, let's be honest here. The guy deserves it, right? I mean, come on. He made the choice. He went down to Sodom. He knows what that town was like. He jumped into Vegas and now he's in the gambling debt. Duh, that's the way that works. been in Amsterdam for weeks. There's no surprise he's now got AIDS. But Abram doesn't say, all right, he deserved it. Let him reap what he sowed. Abram says, he's my family. And because he's my family, I'm going after him. I'd rather die on the battlefield trying to get him back than sit here quietly because I would kill myself to sit here while this happens. And Abram gathers his guys. And this is where an altar is built. And I can't help but think, it's got to be here that Abram says, all right, God, that I've chosen to follow without any instruction other than follow me and I'm going to follow you. You're going to have to be more than my production and my provision. You're going to have to be my protection. Because there are nothing in these odds in any possible way that tell me that I have victory other than this. God, you are going to have to, listen, not give me. You're going to have to be my victory. Because if you're not my victory, this is, I don't have a hope. I mean, if these guys, we don't read that Abram has ever fought a battle with these guys. Now look, at I know what it's like. I was raised studying martial arts. I had taught it when I was in my late teens. I know what it's like to train guys that look really good in their kata and their performance and then watch them get out there and fall apart in a real fight. And the only reason is because they've never really fought but they can do the moves really well. And you hear about stories of these guys that are sort of action stars where they know how to choreograph it and look really amazing on screen with the wires and their harnesses and all that. And then they get beat up by a mugger out in LA. The reason is kind of simple. They've never really fought. And the reason I say is we don't have any record of any of these 318 guys ever fighting anyone except maybe each other. We don't even have a record of that. So it's like, I mean, which one of you wouldn't freak out when Abram looks and goes, boys, I've trained ya." Now, I don't know how Abram would know anything. You know, he started at 75. I've heard a change, you hear? You know what it's like? Don't make me hit you, huh? Sit still so I can hit you. Wait, getting there. Um, okay. Here's the most amazing. He goes, lost in captivity. Lots in captivity. By who? All those kings that killed everyone else. Taking everyone, taking everyone else. Let's go get them. Wait up Wait wait up, I'm coming. Well here I mean the guy the guy can't be as old as seventy-five is today. <coughs> because we read that Abram doesn't go and send three hundred and eighteen guys into battle. Abram leads three hundred and eighteen guys in the battle. And that's just gotta be something. Imagine these kings. Oh and this guy's like Huh! And he's like, huh? You might want to sit down. Do you want to rest for a little bit before we take this thing on? But the guy's like, I don't care. Is that your excuse? You think you've been in it too long and a little old now? I'm not going to take that sitting down. (coughs) (laughs) Let's go to battle. There are too many of our brothers right now in captivity at their own choice because they've chosen to be in a very stupid place at a very stupid time with a very dumb group of people. And they call it ministry, but there's no ministry in that. They're serving themselves, and they know it. Because if you really want to go and see deliverance, you don't go alone. And you're like, what's it? I'm just going to sneak into that bar by myself. I'm going to go into that pub by myself, and it's going to be all ministry. And you're like, why don't you take someone else with me? Well, I don't want to take anyone else with me, because that's accountability. I'm a minister. Yeah, you're going to serve yourself. We're all aware of that. And then they come out and go, I don't understand how I fell. And everyone else is like, yeah, wow, that's a real shocker. And Abram goes. And he takes his men, and listen, his name is Exalted Father. And what is it like to think the Exalted Father just takes people, and if you want to fight, you got to be born in his house. Because he's not just taking other people. I want you born in my house, and if you're born in my house, we're going to go and rescue some of my family. Are you in? They're not. Are you in? Because I'm leading you, says the Father. And they go to battle, and they chase everybody to north of Damascus, to a place called hiding place. So these kings, oh ah, old guy, and then by the time they're done, they're like, ah, old guy, old guy, where's my hiding place? Is he gone? Is he gone? I'm to go, where did he go? Where'd he, where he go? And here's the point of all of that is that after this victory is done. What do you do with somebody that's your protection? You you actually thank them. You pay them. Normally, a person that's your bodyguard, you give a, a, actually a portion of the spoils, and that's exactly what I see in this text. Is Abram really fully convinced that God really is his protection? Now, what we have in this text is a tale of two kings. I think it ridiculously profound their responses. Now Abram is coming back. He's got at least three hundred of his eighteen trained guys with him, and these other guys who were allies. Remember those guys who were Amorites. And with that, he's coming back, and he's come back with Lot, and all of the people, all of the women, all of the children, all of the stuff. Not a man when the father delivers. Not a man, not a woman, not a family, not a child, not a thing is lost. Nothing. Man, it's total deliverance. My God's not into that partial deliverance thing. because My God created you. He knows how to make you right 100%. And he comes back and two people come to meet him for different reasons. Look at our text. And you can see why we're only going to the end of the chapter. It tells us this again in verse 17. Now one of those two characters is the king of Sodom. I want to remind you, does anyone remember what those kings' names were? What's that? Burn, okay, the name of the places where burning and heap of ruins, that's going to, I mean, who wants to move to those places? I mean, God's like, by the way, he moves next to places called burning and heap of ruins. That should be your first clue. Remember one guy's name, is, do you remember what those kings' names were? Son of evil. Remember that? And you look and you go, what? And, and, and with iniquity? That's the name of these kings? And this guy shows up and he's a king. That's one of our kings, the king of Sodom. And it says he went out to meet him at the Valley of Kings. So so he's going to show him at the place where kings all gather, So which means it's a very regal place. There's lots of pomp. If we would do it today, that would mean all the paparazzis there, the red carpet is out, up pulls the limos, and out steps the king of Sodom. That's kind of what Sodom, that's what we kind of get out of this. He meets him at the Valley of Kings. Now don't miss that. One king has definitely showed himself to be big and important. He's come. He's got his king everything on. You know, he's got his king bling. And as he's got his king bling, he steps out. Nobody doubts who this guy is. This guy shows up. This is clearly the king. And the king of Sodom came to meet him at the valley of Shaveh. It's the king's valley after his return from the defeat of Ketelammer. Now, I want to remind you, that would be a really good news for this particular king because this particular king had been paying taxes. I remind you of that. So you defeat this king, he just might have no new taxes. We've heard that before in America. Uh, And so, whatever. And so, with that, and so he goes to meet him. Now, we read in verse 18, then there's a second king that shows up. His name is Melchizedek. Now, Melech means king. Zedek means righteousness. As where the other guy's name, in essence, means son of iniquity or son of evil, this guy's name means king of righteousness. As where one particular king was the king of of scorching or burning. He's the king of burning. This particular one is the king of salam. And salam means peace, like shalom. If you were to say in Arabic today, like if you were to say to somebody that was Jewish or an Israeli, you would say, shalom aleichem, peace I offer you, um, or tidings of peace. If you were to say it to someone that was Arabic, you would say, salam aleichem. And so this, and what you have, and some would say this is Jerusalem. To be honest, it's really neither here nor there. One thing's clear and evident at this point. This is the place where we meet him. And he's the king of a place called peace. So let's get this already. One guy's name means son of iniquity, and he's the king of burning. And the other guy is the king of righteousness by his very name, and he's the king of peace. And these two guys show up. As they show up, notice that in verse 18, the king of righteousness the king of peace comes out with goodies. It says that he brought out bread and wine and that he was the priest. Notice it's a definite article. he wasn't a priest. He was the priest. First time, by the way, in scripture, we get the word priest. We will not see another priest until we get to Egypt. And that guy's name is Pharaoh potty, potty Pharaoh. You can find it on your own. Um, This particular guy we read is a priest of the God Most High and it's important to recognize if you looked at the three things that we see this man do, verse 18 and 19 and 20, this is what we read, that he brought out and he blessed and he blessed. That's what this king did. As a matter of fact, it's the first word out of his mouth is blessed. Barach, blessed. So this is my king of righteousness, my king of peace. And he comes out with two things. Which, by the way, we will learn later to be infinitely more profound than we said the moment. First time we see these two things together. And that is bread and wine. Now, interesting, if you actually were to reward a group of people who have won a battle, do you know what you normally bring? You bring meat. Men, This may be a newsflash, but men tend to like meat. And if you have a really big celebration with a bunch of guys, it's pretty possible you'll really make them happy if you kill it and grill it. That's a general, at least it's an American rule. I don't know how it is out here. I also know it works real well in Australia. But but the idea is that if somebody were to come and sort of butter up a group of men, he would do it by bringing, he'd kill the fatted calves. But he's not bringing that. Because God makes special note that he's not just a king. In fact, he's something else that you will find nowhere else in Scripture except two places. He's a king and a priest. And that's really bizarre. And we start to think, what is a priest? Now, I want to remind you, we're trying to approach Scripture as if we don't have all of the other experience, if we're really actually the kind of person that just picks up this book and reads it for the first time. And I get to this and I'm like, so what's a priest? Because according to this, all I get in all of this is that this guy's a king and a priest. I don't know anything else about it yet, if I'm trying to approach it without any form of prejudice, without any form of pre-writing and all of this. And what I get out of it is, well, it looks to me like, A king blesses people and a priest blesses God because that's what he does here. It's interesting because up to this point, when you see blessing, blessing other than Noah blessing God, all the the other blessing up to this point has been God doing the blessing. God blesses man. He blesses blesses Adam. He blesses Eve. He blesses Noah. And he blesses Abraham. And in all of that now, you've got this particular guy and he shows up with bread and wine. As he shows up with bread and wine, he says, look at you're blessed and God is blessed. That's his statement. So he brought out bread and wine. And by the way, of course, we will recognize that the other two people who will bring out bread and wine, first and foremost, will be Jesus the Christ. Now we recognize that he is both a king and a priest. Here's the problem. The problem is four generations from this, there'll be a guy named Levi or Levi or Levi. And Levi becomes the guy for that's the father of all of the Aaronic priesthood. In other words, if you're going to be a priest within Judaism, you're going to have to follow your lineage somehow to this guy because that's the way it works. The law of the Torah makes clear. You've got to be from that tribe. The problem is, is you go, well, well then how does it fit? But if you're going to be a king, you have to be from another tribe, the tribe of Judah. So you can't have somebody that's from both tribes. can you? So how does it work that this guy can be both? Well, God actually does something really fun with this, and he gives us this because four generations before that guy was born is this guy, and he shows up with no parentage. We don't read that the guy had, you know, he was from this tribe. I mean, up to this point, God's given us lineage of just about every person that's sort of of an important play in all of this. And this guy sort of shows up on the scene, does his, his thing, and then he sort of walks off, and you kind of go, no, who in the world was that guy? Where did he come from? Who's his parents? What nationality is he? I mean, he's the king of Salem. Where's Salem. And in all of that, it's interesting, because God will tell us by Psalm 110 that the Lord has spoken, and he will not change his mind, he will not relent, and this is what he said, you are a priest forever according to the order of this man, Melchizedek. There is an eternal priesthood, the difference between this guy and all of the other priests that will follow is this guy didn't have a beginning or an end. We don't read in the scripture how he started, we don't read in the scripture how he ended, and some people go, that must be God. And to be honest, they say, well, could be, could not be. I can tell you this, that... The boundaries are wide open for this. But if you're going to be another priest from the Aaronic priesthood, you're going to have a beginning and an end. I mean, you're going to have to chase your lineage, which means you were born, and ultimately you'll die and have somebody else take your place. God says, look it, but there's a priest that's coming that has no beginning or end, that blesses the Father. And how does he bless him? He blesses him by laying before the people the love of God and laying before God the forgiveness of, of man, the need of man's forgiveness. We see it with the high priest, the Kohen Gadol, when we get there, and we'll get there soon, that he wears this unique outfit. And on this unique outfit, he wears stones, 12 stones, one for each tribe upon his chest, beautiful and precious stones, and two black stones sitting upon his shoulders. Profound, because a priest is to go to God and to go to man. He's to represent God to man and man to God. And I get it. I get it because the stones mean everything because it's the two places where the names of the tribes were written. These 12 beautiful precious stones upon his bosom, that place of great intimacy, beautiful and glorious, each with a tribal name and then upon his shoulders on these black stones, six tribes apiece written on those stones. And I get it, as he goes to God, he goes and he brings the sin of man to God, like the blackness of our sin upon his shoulders. And he goes before God and says, God, bring forgiveness. And then he goes before God's people and he shows the beauty and the precious thing that they are, as he shows the precious stones. The people don't see this. God sees this. They see this. That place in the bosom of the heart of God where they see you are a precious stone. That's exactly what Jesus said in Matthew 13. That the kingdom of heaven is like a one who walked through a field and he saw a precious jewel. And for the love of that jewel, he gave up everything to buy the whole world, the whole field, to get that jewel. The jewel's you. And God has always made clear that a priest tells people that the love of God is that you are that jewel, that he would give up everything, that he would give up everything, that he would give up everything to buy, to purchase. That's how precious you are. You're no mistake. You're not just breathing mass that will cease one day and go back to worm food. You are a precious jewel in the sight of God who brings before you. And I stand here as a priest of the living God. And how do I have the right to stand as a priest before as a living God? Because the only other place where there is a king and a priest than here in Genesis and there as Jesus and the order of Melchizedek as a priest, but also as the tribe of, ben- of, of Judah as the king is in Revelation 1.6 where we lift up our voices and say, you have made us kings and priests. And that becomes our role now. What a crazy thought. And we do the same. We bring this the sin of others, we bring it before God and go, God, please bring forgiveness and show me, make me an agent of that. And then I go before others and I show that you are precious in the sight of God. This is what you see in the heart of God, in the bosom of God. You are precious. But as I go before God, I'm like, God, we are in need. Me too. I don't just carry them on my hands and go, look, God, those people are nasty. I carry them on my shoulders because I'm filthy too, just like you. Desperate need of the blood of Christ. Praise God, it's abundant and available for all of us. And this guy shows up with the two things that will be the very emblems of the gift of Jesus Christ. The bread that will ultimately become the Lamechani, the bread of affliction that will be broken as God, Jesus, God in the flesh takes an embrace and says, so see this, this was your bondage. I'm breaking it. God speaking, I'm breaking your bondage now. Because if my body is going to be broken to pay for it. And then the cup to say, see this wine? This is my bloodshed. Because this is about me staying. This is about my faithfulness, not yours. I know how weak you are. I know the Spirit may be willing, but I know how weak your flesh is. And I'm not giving up on you because you're human. And I'm not telling you you should go out and party now. I'm telling you you should get out there and celebrate. Because I'm not going to ever leave you. And I will never forsake you. I don't care where you go. I am not giving up on you. And this cup tells you that. This cup says, "I'm not done with you, and we are not done. If I begin it, I'll, I'll end it. I know what I got into the moment I said yes to you when you hated me." And this priest, the first priest in scripture, brings us the two things that will be the very emblems of your purchase, and your keeping and mine too. Oh, but then there's another king. What's interesting is this particular king, who by the way, again, is a priest, came to give. Did you see him take anything? He gave wine, he gave bread, he gave blessing. But He didn't take anything. Well, until Abram freely gives, but he didn't take. He didn't ask for anything. Though he will receive a tithe, which again is just a tenth. So his first word is blessed. Verse 19, Abram, it says, and he blessed him. He said, blessed be Abram of God most high, Possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high. I want to bless man, and I want to bless God. That's what a priest does. Well, then it tells us. Well, that's interesting. Well, what's the script for the other king? Verse twenty-one. While the other, while well, this king, this king of righteousness, this king of peace says, "Blessed, blessed." Verse twenty-one. What are the first two words of the other king? You tell me. Blurt it out. What does it say? Oh, do you see the difference? Blessed, bless give me give me you know what's interesting is the entire world is going to be governed by one or two kings you're aware of that right there's one king that's come to bless to bless and there's another king that's come to take give me give me and here's the most amazing thing as a christian i can choose to submit myself to either king stupid as it is that and forgive me for being so brash with that but the truth be told i could choose to be to submit to either. And you can tell the difference because whether I enter into it to give or whether I enter into it to take. Think about marriage. Did you get into it? Those of you who are married, those of you who are looking to be married, are you looking to be married because there's something you can give or because something you can take? Now, let's not play the game of dolling it up. Be honest. Because we can all say, well, I come to give. What did I come to give? I come to give whatever it takes to get what I'm really looking for. Well, let's be honest why are you entering into this? I mean, you don't get cards that say, look it, I just love you because you are so needy. <laughs> I want you to know you are my girl because I just, you need to be served all the time. That's not the cards you buy, are they? Or maybe if you're weird, you might. But pretty likely that the card is something like, oh, I love you because of the way you make me feel. Vivaldi plays, the doves are released, rivers of chocolate flow through the streets, and you just call. Talking to you is like getting a massage. You know, I mean, yeah, that's selfless, man. You entered into that. Which king are you serving in that relationship? Which kingdom are you under? Friends. Why are your friends your Friends. Because Jesus said, if you really want to represent me, you'll represent me most clearest than the least, the last, and the lost. That would mean somebody that comes in that's really needy, we'd be crawling all over each other to try to serve that person because that would be what the Lord would want. Well, let's face it. If someone came in and they just seem extremely in need, we'd be, people would be trying to find the farthest corner away from it to pretend like they weren't. Because we learn that in London, don't we? The guy falls on the ground, like intestines fly out, and we're like, whoa, don't get that on my jeans. I better keep walking this way, pretend. You know what that's like. We learn how to kind of look the other way. We've learned how to make it an art form, because you know what? People get out there, and they have their clipboards, and you kind of know, oh, they're kind of walking towards you. Whoosh, so let's get into a conversation with no one, or, oh, let's where's my phone? I mean, we know how to kind of, maybe I'm just being too sincere here, but you kind of know it sooner or later, and then what happens is then we kind of go, well, but if, I'm not going to go with every shyster, but then we learn how to, we train ourselves not to to look for any need. God says, wait a minute, that's not the way it is. Which king are you serving? Because in the end of it all, one gives, one takes. Which one are you? In the end of it all, strangely enough, one guy actually gets more than the other. This king of peace, this king of righteousness, receives a tenth of everything, according to this, that Abram has. It's interesting, because it says he gave him a tithe. Look at verse 20, um, 20 with me. Does it say he gave him a tenth of the spoil? A tithe of the spoil? What does it say he gave him a tithe of what? What is it? what did he give him a tithe of? Okay, you can all say it. What did he give a tithe of? All, oh, yes. Yeah. So if he gave him a tithe of all, and this guy was a pretty, this guy was a very wealthy man is what we read in scripture. This guy made out, but he didn't ask for anything. I and mean, I think there's a lesson to be learned in that. Because if Abram has really decided that God is his provision and his protection, then he really can live the kind of life that really is full on for him and trust that God will back him up. And we're not talking about living the life of a lunatic. We're talking about living the life of someone who loves the Lord with abandon. I mean, abandon. When someone goes, you know, I think you're getting overboard. I'm like, you know what? Yes, because you can't walk on water in the boat. I want to go overboard. I want to OD on Jesus. And if that bothers someone, let it bother him but I don't want anything holding me back. And I want to follow this king who's a priest because I don't want to follow the other one because, man, sooner or later, he'll be gone the moment I'm done giving when I don't have anything left to give. And he's like, well, better find someone else. Okay, the king in the order of Melchizedek. A priest in the order of Melchizedek? Hebrews, for what it's worth, in three specific chapters, will make clear that Jesus is exactly that. In chapters 5 through 7, the key, one of the key points and uh, the book of Hebrews is really basically why worship a bunch of other things? Jesus is better than everything. Why worship angels? Jesus is better than angels. First couple chapters. Why worship Moses? Jesus is better than Moses. He's greater than the law. He's greater than the sacrificial system. He's the end of all of those things. He's the cap on all of them. He's the beautiful emblem of all of those things. Now, I'm not telling you, don't enjoy this. Don't celebrate the feasts. I'm telling you, there's a difference between, look at that's going to be what I trust in. You go, why trust in that? You're going short. Why not give your life to Christ? He's the one that this is all about. And it was a wake-up call because people were returning back to the sacrificial system A year or two before it was about to be destroyed, it was about 68 AD when when the Hebrews was written, and the temple was about to be destroyed. And God says, look, if this is your last call, make sure your trust is in the right person, and the right thing. And he goes, man, you're trusting in the Levitical priesthood. There's a priest that's better because he has no beginning or end. These guys, and I love the way God puts it. He goes, these guys, well... They can't keep doing the same thing all the time because death prevents them from keeping to do so. So they have to be replaced. Jesus, on the other hand, has no beginning or end. And therefore, when his act is done, it's done for good. Done for good. So follow this through with the last part of it. Verse 21. The king of Sodom, on the other hand, he says, now give me, give me people. Now, why would the king of Sodom want people? Well, listen, when God explains what a king is, what a king does, Through Samuel, as he tells the people, the nation of Israel who are asking and hungry for a king so they can be like everyone else, he says, listen, that's what they'll do. 1 Samuel 8, verse 11 says, he'll take your sons. He'll appoint them over his chariots, over his horsemen. He will appoint them as captains over thousands and fifties. He will have some plow, some reap, some to make weapons of war. He'll take your daughters. They'll become perfumers and cooks and bakers. Well, He'll take the best of your fields. He'll take your vineyards. He'll take your olive groves. He'll take a tenth of your grain and your vintage. He'll take your male servants. He'll take your female servants. He'll take your finest young men and your donkeys and your sheep, tenth of them, and you will be his servants. See, the king of this world comes to take. And isn't that exactly what we read? That the king of this world comes to steal, kill, and destroy. He comes to take, and he takes until there's nothing left to take. Don't be like him and don't sucker yourself into it because you have a choice today what king you're going to give yourself to. Jesus says, I've come that you would have life. See, one king came to take and one king came to give. He says, I give my life as a ransom. That's giving. So that you would have life. That's giving. Which one are you going to take? says, look at him. Abram's response, verse 23, I will take nothing. And by the way, Abram says in verse 22 to that king, I have raised my hand to the Lord God Most High. Isn't it interesting the terms he used? First time you're going to read these terms, except for the, what you just heard. Because it was the priest, this Melchizedek, who says, Oh, blessed be the God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And you can almost see that just rattling Abram, because he's still trying to figure out who this God is he's following. And he goes, That's who it is, the most high God. And if He's the most high God, who could better protect me than the most high God? And if He's the most high God, who could better provide for me than the most high God? And who could better give me purpose than the most high God? Because if He's going to provide He's the possessor of all of heaven and earth, how could He not provide for me? It's all His. Okay, I've got it. He's the big one. The best. Over everything. And this king goes, hey, and I have the people. You can keep the stuff. And he says, look at I've already made it, raise my hand, and now I know. I raise my hand to the God Most High. You're not the God Most High. Your King was low. I raise my hand to the God most high. You know what I'm saying? I'm not going to take anything. And by the way, there's a really important side note in this as we bring this around to pray. And that is. If you're going to go out there and seek deliverance to someone, you really want to go out there and rescue some brother or sister that's trapped in something, you could get sidetracked by what you think you can take on the way. And Abram, we learn from him, he has no interest in taking anything but what he came to rescue. That's what he came to do was rescue. And if you've ever been involved in any form of reconnaissance, you know, don't get involved in anything but the rescue. Man, you got to make it clear what you're there for. Make it clear what you are there for. And he says, look, it, I already told the Lord, I told the God most high that I just met the priest. Did you meet that guy? Because he was amazing, man. Let me tell you what, I already said, look, at none of it's going to be mine because I don't want you ever saying that somehow all this blessing came from you. I'm not going to let you take credit for what God did. God's my provider, not you. And I don't want you trying to cash in on God's glory. So I'm not going to take it all. The only thing I am going to take is this. Those guys, those guys that were my allies, and those are the names he mentions here. He says, those guys, I want to make sure they get fed. Whatever they took, let it be theirs. But as far as I'm concerned, nothing goes to my household. And at the end of it all then, and again, those are those names, Aner, Escol, Mamre. In verse 5, chapter 15, verse 1, and we close with this. These are the words of the Lord. He came to Abram in a vision. We'll pick it up there next week. He said, don't be afraid, Abram. I'm your shield. You're exceedingly great reward. Abram, there's no reason to be afraid now, man. You're right. Abram, you said that I was your protection. I just want you to know, you can hear me say it, I am. I'm everything you need to trust in. Psalm 7, God is called my defense. 18, verse 2, one of my favorite verses in Scripture. The Lord is my rock. My fortress, my deliverer, my God, my strength in whom I will trust, my shield and the horn of my salvation and my stronghold. One verse, man, where if you just got all, all the stuff from that verse, you'd sleep well tonight. Psalm 31, to the rock and fortress, my strength. 32, you are my hiding place. That's where we get it from. Psalm 40, my help and my deliverer. Psalm 71, my strong refuge. Psalm 89, the rock of my salvation. Why do we find so much of this in Psalms? Because one of the people writing, an awful lot of them, was a guy that spent half of his life running for his life until he became king himself. This is a guy that one wrong move would, have, would literally have killed him. It wouldn't have just put him in jail. It would have killed him. And that's a guy that had to know that God really is his deliverance, his provider, his protection, his refuge, his rock, his shield, his fortress. Now may you never be put in a place where that has to be flushed out. Where you really have to see God be your protection. But to be honest, the scripture says, don't fear the person who can hurt your body. The worst thing they can do is kill you. Remember, this is God who looks at everything from eternity's perspective. So what can they do, kill you? He says, you need to fear the one that after being killed could send your soul to hell. That's the one you need to be concerned about because eternally there's a much bigger thing in the balance than just whether or not you're going to live through the event. And you know the most beautiful part? Jesus says, whoever the Father gives will come to me and no one is able to snatch them out of my hand. If you are in the hand of Jesus, (laughs) nobody gets at you. I don't know what you've been taught, what church you've been in, but I can tell you, according to Scripture, it tells us whoever has been born of God keeps himself, and the wicked one, the wicked one, can't even touch him. That's a weird maybe for some of you. That's a brand new revelation. But that's First John, by the way. Satan can't get at you because Jesus is the good shepherd and he's the gate to the sheep. He ain't getting at his sheep. I mean, what do you think? That Satan kind of juked right? Jesus juked right with him and he went, when mm, oh, he went around him and Jesus was like, oh, and then Satan got at you. You really think that Satan could do that? Do you really think he's that spry? And you can see guy going, Ah oh, man, again. <laughs> uh, I better wait till that guy prays. Then you're like, Well, why do I feel like I'm getting so worked like that? Well, look at you wanna I mean if you want to run out of this thing, the Lord will let you get worked, but it's only so that you'll cry out to him because it's like the Lord says, Look it. You want to oh. stay here, you're safe. Stay with me, the Lord says. Just stay. You're like, but that society is so exciting. It's rich and it's famous and flashy and shiny. And God says, have you learned anything from Lot yet? It was shiny and nice. It was verdant. That man came out with smoke coming out of his drawers by the time he was done. Is that what you want? And he looks at his wife and is like, mm, huh. I, I mean, what, is, that what, is that what you want? I don't want that for my family. So listen, beloved. You represent the king of kings. God, most high. There's no tie. There's only one, and, he, and he's it. And he owns everything. You say, this world belongs to the No, it doesn't. It says, all the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The world is under the sway of the wicked one, but it isn't his. It's still, and one day, God's coming back to claim his own. And the insane doesn't have any say in it. He can't j- jump into the court system or whatever. As a matter of fact, he's going to set the whole thing up, and it's like, who can make war against that guy and all that? And Jesus is going to go, hi, boom, and the whole thing's over. It says that he will knock over with his breath and destroy in the splendor of his coming. I mean, it's like, here's the battle. He's like, oh, we're oh, scary, ah, oh, exorcism, kindness, blah, blah. And Jesus is like, hi, boom, and it's over. And you're like, wow, that was a really short battle. Like, have you forgotten who your king is? Listen, the greatest thing that Satan has to throw at you is your guilt and the death that is earned from it. And that's exactly why Jesus died on the cross. He took your guilt to the cross, and he rose again three days later after fully dying to show that death couldn't win. Is that the the God you serve? Have you accepted that gift of Jesus Christ? Because if you've accepted that gift of Jesus Christ, then you have been adopted. You're not just serving. You've been adopted. By the King of Kings. Your dad. If you haven't, I want to give you that choice. And if you have, it is time to represent. I've heard someone say, if you ain't representing, you perpetrating. You're on one side or the other. Nobody walks the line. Where are you at today? You pray with me? Lord God, I thank you so much for this beautiful text. I think how funny it was last night. I'm going, Lord, just this little bit. I should have known better. Lord, thank you, God, 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 thank you so much that you're not the king over some. You're not the king, sort of, sort of high. Most high, Mo- you're not the God mostly high. You're the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, Jesus. You are seated at the right hand of the Father above every principality, power, might, dominion, and anything else in his name. You kind of made it so that it's like, look, if you want to make up something, it's under Jesus' feet. Anything that can be called a power, anything that can be called a boss, anything that can be called a master, be it made up or real, be it demonic or whatever, it's all under the feet of my Savior who crushed it at the cross. And took dominion as he rose again. And then you tell me. That though I was dead in my trespasses and sin. You raised me up. And seated me in your son. Above all those things. But as long as I'm in Jesus. I am completely saved from the things that are the most threat, the greatest threat. So Lord God, I pray right now for every person in this room, myself included. Oh God, please don't let us walk out of here going, oh yeah, I should probably think about that a little. Jump us, God. Ravish us. And I just want to say, every storehouse in me that has sin, filth, rebellion, mediocrity, lukewarmness. I give you permission to bash through the windows and riot by the power of your spirit and loot me. That all that be left be your presence. That there would be no pollution, no dilution. Oh, but God, that I would be completely and absolutely yours. I pray for every Christian in this room, myself included. Oh, God, please, right now, don't let us play games with you. Make us givers. Lord, I pray right now, if there be any in this room or by the sound of this voice who have never accepted the gift of your son who died on the cross for their sin and guilt and rose again to offer them new life, that they could become a new creation. I pray that this would be the moment of their salvation. As your gospel has gone forth, that you promise is the power of salvation to those who believe. And your Holy Spirit is here and present to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Then God, bring right now salvation. (laughs) And if you don't know right now, if you've ever accepted the gift of Jesus Christ, or you're sure you haven't, but you know you need to today, I'm going to pray a prayer and ask you to listen. And if you agree, I ask you to give a very resounding and confident amen at the end. And by doing so, what you're saying is, I agree, let those words be my words. Let that prayer be my prayer. So be it. And here's the prayer. God, I come to you as a sinner, as a guilty individual, need of forgiveness, your forgiveness. And I believe you've paid for all of my sin, all of my guilt, all of my filth, at the cross, where your only begotten Son, Jesus the Christ, was tortured and killed because the wages of sin is death. And I recognize you've paid in full all of my sin, all of my guilt. And it died there at the cross with your son. But as Jesus has conquered death, he rose again on the third day, just like he promised he would. And in doing so, he offers me new life. And I say yes. Yes, to Jesus as my Lord now, as my Savior, as my payment, as my ransom, and as I accept your gift, I ask, Father, for you to adopt me as you are the King above all kings. The Lord above all lords, as you are the master over everything, I ask right now that you adopt me as your own. You paid the price with your own son, and now you've asked for me to accept that gift. And I say, yes, I accept that gift. Have me now, I pray. Make me yours. Transform me. Be the God of my production and the God of my provision and the God of my protection. Be my all in all, I pray, as I give myself to you now. In the name of my Savior and Lord and Ransom, Jesus the Christ, amen.